chapter 15, Proverbs 15, verses 1 through 7. I could have gone anywhere in Proverbs for this, I think. But we're just going to plant it here at Proverbs 15, 1 through 7. It's page 541 in that blue Bible. And I just, I, I just want you to notice as we read through this, it doesn't deal with the words or the tongue very often in these seven verses, but it does enough that it becomes a primary concern. And I want you to notice the connection between wisdom, wisdom and words, words and wisdom. Proverbs 15, beginning of verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of Yahweh are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. And now we turn to James chapter 3, James 3, which is on page 1012. I'm going to actually do the whole chapter, but right now I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2, and we'll do the rest of the chapter, and I'll read it throughout the sermon, and so you need to have your Bibles open. James 3, verses 1 and 2, as we continue our series, Hand and Heart, Hand and Heart. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. What I've read to you from the Old Testament and from the New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, you gave us one mouth, two eyes, and two ears, as my grandma used to say. And so help us to look and to listen more than we talk. And when we talk, to promote the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church. For your glory and honor's sake. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide. As I said, for those visiting, we're doing a series through James called Hand and Heart. The sermon notes are back there on the worship guide and also some questions at the end. Loose lips sink ships. That was the old war slogan from World War II, and Duke Ellington made this slogan popular in his 1942 song, A Slip of the Lip Can Sink a Ship. And in that song, and I loved listening to it, in that song he crooned these words, Walls have ears, knights have eyes, so let's be wise and trick those nasty Nazi spies. That was great. It's a great song. Loose lips sink ships. In a way, it's all very catchy point. And it's one that has stuck with us. And that was 1940s. And we still know that slogan. So it is powerful. Well, James is addressing something very similar to this here as he spills, as he spills out a ton of ink on the tongue and how the tongue can sink far more than just ships. Now, I want you to understand as we get ready to get into this that... There's a grammatical tool being used here. We, we know this, we just don't know the term. It's called metonymy, where you use one thing to mean several other things. So if, if I were to say to you, well, it's good that Lisa is not hitting the bottle today. Praise the Lord, Lisa. 
But when I say hitting the bottle, you know I'm using a little thing to imply something bigger, right? I mean she's not imbibing in the contents of the bottle and just slobbery drunk all over the place, right? That's metonymy. We use a smaller thing to imply a bigger thing. So when it talks about tongue here, it's talking about something bigger. It's talking about all of our communication abilities, whether spoken, typed, written, whatever, all of our communication abilities. And so James is going to pour a lot of ink on the tongue in verses 1 through 12 and how it can sink far more than just ships. He does so by making first some assertions, verses 1 and 2, some assertions, and then he lays out his arguments, verses 3 through 12, and finally he turns to applications, verses 13 through 18. Let's begin with assertions in verses 1 and 2. There are three assertions made in these two verses, and they are tightly bound together. What James is doing is he is picking up a theme from chapter 1, verse 26, and he is bringing it forward, laying it out on the exam table, and doing an autopsy, if you will, or dissecting it. Those of you who are in high school or whatever, used to do dissections, you'll appreciate that, right? He's laying it on the exam table and dissecting it so that we can see the parts of it in greater relief or greater presentation. And the theme is verse, chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this one's religion is worthless. Notice the, the point, right? Here's the difference between phony religion and faithful religion. And the first place James goes in chapter 1 is to the tongue. If you don't bridle your tongue, no matter what you say about your faith, it's phony. That's pretty hard-hitting. And so James is going to come here and he's going to make lots of hay out of this. But notice that his first concern, and here's really the first assertion, his main concern here has to do with Christian teachers in the dispersed communities. The 12 tribes in the dispersion, he says at the beginning of verse 1. It has to do with the Christian teachers of these dispersed communities. That's what he tells us in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, if you know that, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now let's come at the back of that verse first. Who's doing the judging? Funny, it doesn't tell you who's doing the judging. Is it God doing the judging? Is it the law of liberty? That was back in chapter 2. Live and act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. Is it outsiders? Well, James never says so. Though Paul, actually in Paul's writings to his pastors, Timothy and Titus, has a lot to say about outsiders' perceptions of us. Is it outsiders? Is it insiders? Well, in chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, he will have a lot to say about the insiders of the church doing a lot of judging. So the fact that he doesn't tell us who's doing the judging, I think, is James' way of saying, yeah, all of those, right? In so many different ways. Now, you may ask the question, uh, why is it that they are judged with a greater strictness? Teachers, because it's just a simple human, but it's also biblical principle. The greater the position, the greater the responsibility. Does that make sense? The greater the position, the greater the responsibility. It was that way when I was in the Air Force. When we were in the military, if somebody was uh, actually charged with fraternization, it was almost always the higher ranking person. Fraternization is where one person is becoming too friendly with another, you know, whatever that means, right? And so it was always the higher ranking who was actually being, usually being disciplined 
for the fraternization, not the lower ranking. Why? Because the higher ranking have the greater position and therefore have the greater responsibility, plus they should know better, right? That's the point. And I think that's James's, that's clearly James's assumption. The greater the position, the greater the responsibility. And so his first assertion has to do with Christian teachers. He's primarily focused on Christian teachers. But all the way through chapter 3, we need to have this thought in our heads. Because as we read chapter 3, we go, but that's true about all of us. It is. Everything James says is true about all of us. And here's the point then. Is it true about all of us? It is. How much more so Christian teachers? How much more so for Christian teachers? That's how James is doing this. And so then his second assertion is very straightforward. And it's right there when he says, for we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. Wow, thank you, James, for saying that. But why are you saying that? James's admission is saying to Christian teachers that being a Christian teacher is already fraught with weakness, a weakness that impacts and infects every one of us. We all stumble in many ways. And so, Christian teacher, remember that you're not invincible. We all stumble in many ways, right? That's the second assertion, which leads to the third assertion. These are all bound tightly together. It's verse 2. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So notice James is concerned with what is being said, what is being communicated. If we do not stumble, if you do not stumble what you say and communicate, you're a perfect man and able to bridle even the body. Hmm, interesting. Now, we've already talked about the perfect, because that's clear back in chapter 1, verse 4, and you know that when he says perfect man, he's not referring to entire sanctification, spotless sinlessness. He's talking about someone who is showing and evidencing that they are maturing and muscling up in faith. Remember that in Scripture. Perfect does not mean sinlessness. It means muscling up and maturing in faith. And so here's a person, if he's able to bridle his tongue or control what he says, he's, he's showing that he is maturing and muscling up in faith, which is always the goal that James wants for all of us. So James is targeting Christian teachers in chapter, starting with chapter 3, verse 1. The point is this. Christian teachers, Christian pastors and preachers, lead, should be leading, should be leading the way in faithful religion that bridles the tongue. Let me say it again. Christian teachers, pastors, preachers, etc., should be leading the way in faithful religion that bridles the tongue. It's kind of what goes along with what I said last Sunday evening about leading from the front. They should lead the way in faith, maturing and muscling up. In fact, James makes a great connection between what is said and what is lived out in verse 2. Notice he talks about he uses the bridling language. He says, um, this is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. Back in chapter 1, verse 26, what is that word of bridle that shows that we have true religion? Bridle the tongue. There's a connection between what is said and what is done. 
the direction is set. And so you'll notice when we get to the next few verses, he brings that connection very clearly. And I'll show it to you in just a minute. So that's important. Anyways, so we, to encourage our attention to his assertions here then, he lays out his arguments, and that's verses 3 through 12. So follow along as I read 3 through 12. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force to set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord. We bless the Lord Jesus and Father. We bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So here, is James, here are James's arguments. And his arguments fall into two camps. Verses Three through the first part of verse 5 are positive proofs. Positive proofs. The rest of verse 5 through verse 12 are adverse verifications. Adverse verifications. So notice then the positive proofs. They're very forthright. Little bits and little rudders. And notice it's teeny little things that steer and guide bigger things. In fact, he uses the whole body language again. Did you notice that? With the horse in verse 3. A little bitty bit can steer and control the whole body. The teacher who's able to control his words is able to bridle his whole body. Oh, words and actions do often go together. And the words can set the direction of where we're headed. But notice it's little things. I mean, has anybody ever ridden a horse here? Yeah, raise your hand. It's okay. We're, we're kind of bad to see here sometimes. It's okay. Right, have you ever been amazed when you're riding a horse? It's a big old hunking piece of muscle. And that little bitty metal thing in its mouth. Right? You can steer it this way and that way. And I'm always amazed when I ride a horse that it doesn't just say, yo, bub, get off. Right? Sometimes they do, but a little bitty thing. Same thing with a ship and a rudder. A little bitty thing can steer the course. Well, that's James's point. A teacher's teaching and a teacher's speaking can set a good course or it can turn things in bad directions. It's that potent. And, if that's, and that's true about all of us. I mean, this is James's idea. This is true about all of us. All of us have this ability. And if it's true for us, how much more so for the teachers of God's community? And those are his positive proofs. 
Then James turns the corner to adverse verifications. It's the rest of verse 5 down through verse 12. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. What a great analogy. What a good metaphor. I mean, how many times have you driven down I-40 or 44 or, or I-35 in the middle of the summer, usually, and you look over and you see this big black spot, right? And it went on for quite a while. What is that? It's a grass fire, right? And how many times did you think, I wonder what caused that grass fire? You know what it probably was? It could have been somebody's cigarette. Think of that little bitty hot cherry at the end of a cigarette, creating a big destruction. It could have been a chain clinking around on the asphalt behind a truck as it was going down and sending off little teensy-weensy slivers, splinters of hot metal that are red, and they go over in the grass and start the fire. It could also be the radials on your tires. If you let your tires wear down, be careful about wearing your tires down. The same thing happens every year in California and, unfortunately, Oregon and Washington. Right? We get these huge forest fires. They weren't set on fire, most of them weren't set on fire by, by manic uh, 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 arsons. They're usually set on fire by somebody leaving their campfire, putting out most of it, but leaving some coal still hot in the campfire. The wind blows that little coal, sends the embers off, and the next thing you know, the house burns down. Right? So that's his analogy. And you know it's the case. A great force is set ablaze by such a small fire. The same when it comes to our communication abilities. And James, with James, it just simply gets hotter because of our sinful nature. A world of unrighteousness staining the whole body. The tongue staining the whole body. Do you hear the connection again? Now, I love woodworking. I bet you didn't know that, did you? I do. And it's funny, when you stain wood, it's never the same after that. Once that stain gets in and gets down through all the, the grain and everything, it will always have some mark to it. You will almost have to cut the wood in half to get away from it or something, right? It's, it changes the wood even. I love the fact when I stain, I hate to tell you I do it this way, but when I stain, my little bitty white hands turn into little bitty brown hands, right? I mean, it, it impacts my everything about you right so that's the point the staining the whole body it's charring and burning the entire course of life set on fire by hell a restless evil full of deadly poison and as bleak as this is james moves further into the destructive ways that it works that our communication abilities work in our relationships and in our congregations it's down in verse 9 and 10. With it, we bless the Lord. We bless the Lord Jesus. He's the only one mentioned in James as the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Every time you see the Lord in James, you should think of Jesus. With it, we bless the Lord Jesus and Father. And with it, we curse our brothers. We curse others who are made in the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And James then says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. And so that we can't wiggle out from underneath this, notice that he then tells us how unnatural this all is, verse 11 and 12. That's the point of verse 11 and 12. The destructive use of our tongues is unnatural. 
Let me say it again. The, un, the, 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 the destructive use of our tongues is unnatural. It's as natural as an aquifer putting forth spring water that's both healthy and life-giving and bitter and poisonous. How natural is that? If you came to a spring that was putting out both of those, what would you say? Why, that's weird. And that's the point. Why, that's weird. If you saw an olive tree putting out figs, what would you be thinking? Say it, come on. That's weird. Thank you so much. Yes, that's weird. Right, it's unnatural. If you see a fig tree putting out, uh, oh, I don't know. Oh, oh, I love mangoes. A fig tree putting out mangoes, what would you say? That's, that's Yeah, that's yummy. Yes, that's yummy. But then you'd say, that's weird. That's the point. From our own mouths, which are not created to damn and doom and curse and destroy. From our own mouths come both. When we were created, our communication abilities were made so that we could flourish in communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and communion with one another. That's what they were given to us for. God did not give us the ability to communicate so that we could burn the house down. He gave us the ability to communicate, to flourish in communion. Genesis 3 comes... And what does the serpent do with words? Misuses words. As God really said. And we've been following him ever since. It is unnatural. That's what James is saying there. So my friends, the emphasis that James lays out here flows throughout Proverbs from one end of Proverbs to the other. Just very quickly, two examples. From Proverbs 12, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Now, my friends, are sword thrusts healing? Are sword thrusts remedial? Are sword thrusts deadly? The point. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Or chapter 15 that we read just a minute ago. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pour out folly. So my friends, if all that James is saying here is true about all of us, we all know that it's true. We all know the power of our tongues. If all of this is true for all of us, and it is true about all of us and for all of us, how much more so for the teachers and preachers and pastors of God's church? That's James's emphasis. And so after laying out his assertions and building his arguments, James then presents his applications. And it's verses 13 through 18. And James does something that's very biblical. Coming out of Proverbs, he connects words with wisdom. I try to emphasize that as we read Proverbs 15. He connects words now with wisdom because it's the wisdom we use that usually guides the words we use. It's the wisdom we use that usually guides the words that we use. And so James 3, starting at verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth, 
This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy or jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so the application that James makes here is he addresses wisdom and how you can know what kind of wisdom a teacher is following. You can also apply it to yourself. What kind of wisdom are you following and speaking from? Is it rotten wisdom or is it real or righteous wisdom? Is it rotten wisdom or is it real or righteous wisdom? And the way you know is because wisdom has traits and characteristics that are observable. You see it in verse 13. That's the principle, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Wisdom is actually observable. It has traits and characteristics that you can see. So James talks about, first off, rotten wisdom, and then he will move to real or righteous wisdom. Rotten wisdom does have traits and characteristics that are observable. And you notice it in what he says. Bitter jealousy. Selfish ambition that brags and is false to the truth. And then he goes on to say it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. I find that intriguing. Demonic wisdom. Hmm. Shouldn't be a surprise. If you remember last week's sermon and we were looking at James chapter 2, did you notice that the devil has faith? Chapter 2, verse 19, the devil believes. The devil believes the truth about Jesus, the historical facts. The devil knows that those facts are true and that Jesus is on his throne and that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. The one thing the devil doesn't do is entrust himself to Jesus. He doesn't submit himself to Jesus. The devil believes it was the same thing with wisdom. The devil has wisdom. There is demonic wisdom. You know that because, again, of Genesis chapter 3. How, how is the serpent described in Genesis chapter 3? He's the most, what? Cunning. And in the Hebrew, that's a wisdom word that is all over Proverbs in very many good ways. The serpent was wise. It just wasn't a good wisdom. And so that's what James is doing here. Pointing out there is a wisdom that's not good, and then there's a wisdom that is good. There's a rotten wisdom. And notice that this rotten wisdom is accompanied, verse 15, by disorder and every vile practice. Verse 16. Disorder. It separates, it destroys, it creates chaos, it throws the house into disarray, and then every vile practice. That's kind of an interesting phrase because it means like everything, <laughs> right? Every vile practice. And so it is a wisdom that is, does not come down from above. And notice that this wisdom is being unmasked, being unmasked and undressed by its damaging, destructive tendencies. And it's from that wisdom that one misuses, uses their tongue unnaturally to destroy and devastate, and demolish, 
and burn the house down. But there's a real wisdom. There's a real wisdom. And it's there in verses 17 and 18. It starts really in verse 13. It's already implied in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his work in the meekness of wisdom. In fact, James is bringing in this almost identical language from chapter 2. If you have faith, show it to me by your works, by your good conduct, right? It's the same principle, same thing about faith, the same thing about wisdom. Show it to me. We're all Missourians. It's a show me state or whatever state it was that used to have that slogan, right? It's what we're supposed to be. Show me. And so then, the traits of wisdom, notice, come out in verse 17. First, pure peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Isn't that interesting? Impartial. What does that take your mind back to in James? Chapter 2 and verse 1. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Oh, that's right. Not put off by the poor nor wowed by the wealthy, not misusing righteousness so that it benefits me and it damns you. Not misusing the law and giving you, holding you to strict accounts while I give myself broad latitude. Not misusing scripture, not misusing civil law even. To say you need to obey the law and then making excuses as to why I don't have to submit to it. No, that's not healthy. Impartial. Being fair. Right? And notice that that's the real wisdom, impartial and sincere. And then you know real wisdom because a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Funny enough, all of those traits kind of go almost dovetail with the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. When you realize that connection, you realize that this wisdom from above is empowered by the Spirit. And so again, James's whole point, this is true for all of us. We all act and speak from wisdom of some kind, rotten or real wisdom. And if this is true for all of us, how much more so is this true for the teachers of God's people? So first off, as we tidy this up here at the end, or try to, notice that the impact of both of these approaches, rotten wisdom and real wisdom, that the impact of both approaches have very social and relational impacts. If it is all true about all of us, and it is, then it means that our words and our communication abilities can burn the house down, can destroy it, my relationship with my wife can damage my kids horribly, can blow a congregation to smithereens, can even cause some businesses to go bankrupt. It has huge impact. And that's a good indication of what wisdom is being used as we speak. When we talk, these are like sword thrusts. When we're communicating, whether we're, I'm talking about whether it's out there in public on social media or to one another or in letters or whatever, 
Is it burning the house down? That's probably a good indication we're not using the right wisdom and we're coming at this all the wrong way. Or are our words flowing from divine wisdom? How would you know? First pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And so a harvest of righteousness is being sown in peace by those who make peace. But further, my friends, if all of this is true for all of us, then how much more so is it true for the teachers and pastors of God's community? Let me come at it one way and then come back another way here. This is actually the last question in your sermon notes. At the very, very bottom, I actually quote myself. Do you know how weird it is to quote yourself? The soil, the soil that maturing, muscling up faith thrives in, the soil that maturing, muscling up faith thrives in is worked by teachers who who are governed by and govern themselves by divine wisdom. The soil out of which your faith continues to grow and flourish and muscle up and mature is the soil that is tended by teachers who are governed by and govern themselves by divine wisdom. It's these kinds of teachers who help Christians to flourish in ways that are first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, without or impartial and sincere, so that a fruit of righteousness is being sown in peace by those who make peace. My friends, James's point is hugely important in our time, probably more important than it was in his time, and it was really important in his day. You see, in his day, if you wanted to be a teacher, if John Harris wanted to be a teacher, he either had to live in the community where, that ha- where he was teaching, or he had to travel days and weeks to get to where he wanted to go. And so if he wanted to go schmooze somebody or be a shyster, he, had to, he was either known in the community, and they knew what kind of a person he was, or he traveled long, long distances that took long, long time to get there. And so there were actually a little bit of filters, little filters there, chronology and geography. But today, guess what? You can access a bazillion and 15 teachers with a click and a connection. And every one of those teachers, almost every one of those teachers is trying to get you to be with them, to be on their side. Now, some of them are legitimate. Don't get me wrong. I'm not poo-pooing everybody. But the plethora of teachers out there what we need to do is we need to have some discernment and start asking the question, Is this program that I'm watching, is this podcast that I'm listening to, is this YouTube channel that I have been getting deep into, are these guys trying to isolate me and get me to be on their posse, to get me on their program, to stand on their platform? Are they burning the house down? Are they destroying others with what they say? Or is what they're teaching building up Christian charity, for example. Building up godliness that pulls us closer and closer to each other. We need to be asking those questions because it's even more important today. My friends, this is not preaching. I'm not preaching. I am pouring out my heart to you. I am scared to death about the garbage that is being put out there and being promoted and there's no backup to check it. And we're being schmoozed and we're being lied to. We're being deceived. 
And we're doing it willingly because we're clicking and connecting and saying, well, hey, they're saying things that really, wow, that's really amazing and it makes me feel better, makes me feel more powerful, makes me feel more intelligent, makes me feel like I'm part of a new elect group. Whoa! And the rule of thumb is to ask the question, what's happening through them? What are they actually promoting? Are they being divisive? Are they being damning? Are they fomenting disorder? Are they deriding others, trying to get more and more followers onto their programs, policies, and platforms? Or are they displaying what is first pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason? full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Is there a harvest of righteousness being sown in peace by these? My friends, what James is after here is he wants pastors and he wants parishioners. He wants teachers and he wants the taught to promote. And I'm going to use the words from our book of church order. Sorry, I'm going to bore you to tears. But it's the last ordination vow our elders and deacons swear to and that I swear to. James wants pastors and parishioners, teachers and taught to promote the purity, peace, unity and edification of the church. And you know that's the case because when you glance to chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 you can't miss it. Now you may be asking, why is this all so important? Why is this so important? It goes back to chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. You can't be partial. You can't play favorites if you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What would have happened if he had been partial? Would you have been saved? I like the wealthy. I save the wealthy because they look good and they smell good. <laughs> yeah. No, we'd all be burnt toast. You're holding to a Lord who is fair in so many ways and He is gracious and He's impartial. Well, how, what would happen if Jesus had been all full of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy? I'm all about me, baby. Right? How good would that... Oh, BJ, God bless you, my son. So how, how, would, that have, how would that have been? It would not have been for our salvation. And so when you read verse 17, you need to think Jesus. Because he is the embodiment of verse 17. Verse pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. Praise the Lord. So what justification is about. His righteousness, verse 17, becomes ours. That's why this matters. The way we act, the way we talk, the way we speak pictures or doesn't picture Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you that you gave us tongues. You gave us the ability to communicate. And you gave us this ability to communicate, to thrive and grow and flourish in communion with you and with one another. We confess to you, O God, that we have often fallen into the unnatural trap of blessing you and cursing those made in your image. Dear God in heaven, have mercy upon us, forgive us, and fill us with real wisdom, the wisdom that is from above, that is first pure, peaceable, gentle, 
open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That we may rejoice. That we may give thanks for what you have done for us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.